This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to this episode of Gesher, the second in a series of episodes on the various branches or movements within rabbinic Judaism. Today, we're in conversation about conservative Judaism with Rabbi Aaron Bergman. Rabbi Bergman is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary and pursued additional graduate work in Jewish folklore at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Rabbi Bergman was part of the Educators Program at the Shalom Hartman Institute and completed a Certificate in Educational Leadership with the Spertus Institute in 2019. Today, he serves as rabbi at Adat Shalom Synagogue in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Rabbi Bergman, welcome to Gesher. Okay, thank you, I'm very glad to be here. Well, Rabbi, uh, as I said, we've been doing a series on rabbinic Judaism, understanding the various movements, and so today we're focusing on conservative Judaism. And I'm wondering if you can just give us an overview on the history and emergence of conservative Judaism as a movement, especially how did it how did it take root here in the U.S.? Okay, that's that's a great question. It's going to take a minute. I just want to say one th- word just about the name conservative, that it's not a political statement. Uh, it started really in the 19th century, and the idea was to conserve what was best of Judaism, but also to modernize things that maybe needed some uh, adjusting or tweaking. So we have people who are conservative, people liberal, people in the middle, and people who just checked out of the whole <laughs> the whole thing. And um, so I just wanted to sort of put that out there first, sure. is that because sometimes people say, oh, I didn't come to your synagogue because I thought it was only for people politically conservative. So you're kind so, of a middle-of-the-road approach to Judaism itself, but not not has nothing to do with political. Right. We try to aggravate everyone equally. <laughs> like I, I can tell you, I can give you one sermon and my liberals will torch me and my conservatives will torch me. And I'm like, okay, I did a good job did there. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I pushed all the buttons that were um, the necessary. So sure. in terms of the, the history of the, the movement, the, the precursors were really in uh, Germany in the, uh, the 19th century. Uh, sort of the, the German-Polish border, also kind of um, Central Europe. And it was really trying to answer a, uh, a number of questions that were just challenges in the 19th century. You know, what is the role of science? Uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of a country? This was a time of, uh, of nationalism as well. Uh, Jews had only recently been allowed to be citizens mm-hmm. of countries. And that was an advantage to some extent, but it was also a disadvantage because we used to have kind of corporate and communal autonomy, like the community sort of ran itself and it paid taxes and paid fealty. Um, but the, uh, the 19th century was really what uh, philosopher Emil Fackenheim called the Jewish reemergence into history, mm. that we had sort of been absent from history. Like we were more like mythological creatures <laughs> you know people people hadn't really met us they'd read about us and most of it to be honest wasn't great sure you know and um so what does it mean to emerge into history what does it mean to be part of a modern nation state like so where does a jew fit into uh, this especially you know if countries had still like official religions you know what is um what does that mean it also was uh, a reaction to the rise of history as a discipline and things like archaeology as a discipline you know for for most of you know um, 
written history, and let's just look at like you know the, the Western Abrahamic faiths, it was mostly what they would call Heilsgeschichte, uh, which means the history of holiness. It wasn't um, history per se, it was the history of people's records of the connection between God and people. Okay. You know, it was mythological in the sense of it wasn't provable scientifically. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but you know, if you're looking at the scientific methods in the 19th century, which was like provable, testable, reproducible, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can't have Ezekiel's vision <laughs> testable, provable, reproducible, right, right. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, a lot of um, history wasn't history in the way that we think about it, you know, and historians started asking different questions of like, what were communities really like? Um, how did they actually live? And you have, um, you know, archaeology really developing as a discipline too, in the 19th century, where, you know, archaeology deals with things that are very old, but the discipline is very recent. Right. You know, they used to just call it old stuff. (laughs) You know, like people didn't really care what the people did who came behind them because they were like, oh, they were just primitive or whatever. And all of a sudden you have archaeology, you have people taking uh, texts seriously uh, that had that no one had known about. Um, So you find uh, like in the Jewish tradition, you have the uh, was known as the Cairo Geniza. Mm -hmm. Geniza is where you would. Um, instead of throwing away fragments of sacred literature, you would put them in the storeroom and they would be kind of uh, stored with some dignity but not used. But what was funny is that it was also the only source of paper (laughs) or parchment in the community. So sometimes you see that someone would take it and they would write like their laundry list on the back Uh. and then kind of put it back. So what they had like on the flip side was all this amazing sociological stuff about kind of how people lived and how uh, communities lived. Um, you also have uh, being able to translate uh, ancient uh, pre-biblical languages like Akkadian, Ugaritic, mm-hmm. and things like that, and really kind of cracking these things and saying, wait a minute, you, you have the uh, story of Moses, but then you also have this like Babylonian story, which is a guy in a basket and mm-hmm. <laughs> being rescued. And all of a sudden, you have ask yourself so what do i do with this you like you find out like okay my story maybe is not as unique as i thought maybe my story came from someone uh, somewhere else hebrew was not the original language of the universe we find out it's actually an offshoot of canaanite mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know and so it raised a lot of questions and so what you have uh is this too long a, no no a, i'm <laughs> enjoying this this is perfect so what you have in um, in the 1830s 1820s in germany the rise of something called wissenschaft und judentums which means the scientific study of judaism meaning that they weren't just going to look at sacred text you know most of jewish education was the study of sacred text mm-hmm. whether it was torah talmud uh, midrash commentaries but most Jewish education was limited to sacred text, which is by definition based on mythological sources. Again, not that it didn't happen, but you know, when when you talk about Methuselah, (laughs) you know, you know, things like that, did he really live 900 something years? Is that a metaphor? Um, What's interesting is that in the Arab world, these questions were being asked much earlier. Uh, the Islamic world, you already had Maimonides hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, you know, who studied with uh, Arab philosophers who knew Greek philosophy. 
And so he's already saying that all these things like pre-Abraham are, are parables and metaphors. Hmm. And if they conflict with logic and reason, then you have to look at it as a, as a parable. That doesn't make it to the Western world for hundreds of years later. Right. You know, th this idea of, uh, you know, right, rational thought, logic, science, mathematics, as part of a spiritual development. So Maimonides, who's probably the greatest thinker, you know, of, of our people and probably a lot of other people, said that you can't be religious without a grounding in science, philosophy, mathematics, literature. Hmm. And, and then you can ask the big questions uh, theologically, whereas the European world went just straight theology and bumped out any conflict. <laughs> you know, for science. And so in the 19th century, you finally have an embracing of the idea of uh, science has to have a say. And what I mean like science would be even things like philology, where do the words uh, come from? Uh, where, um, what did other communities practice? You know, so for example, when you're studying sacred texts and they're kind of hermetically sealed, you assume everyone did the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's this straight line from the Torah to the Torah, and, every, and Jews all did the exact same thing until the 19th century and the rationalists ruined it. <laughs> and so what they were able to show is like, no, there was actually an incredible variety of approaches, whether uh, legal, theological, uh, communal norms, how you, uh, how you approach things. And so what you have is that some people were like, we're just going to hold on to the old ways and we're going to ride out, <laughs> you know, yep. all this stuff about, you know, progress and Darwin and all that. And we're just going to hang tight and we're going to keep living in, um, in the sort of mythological world. But then you have others who sort of like strongly embrace the scientific and rational and kind of want to jettison things that don't make sense. So it, would those be, if we put a name on those, you'd have at least today what we'd call the Orthodox community who are more the, the holdouts yeah. and then the reform movement? Uh, but right? very broadly, because even Orthodoxy is a giant you know, span, right. and there were a lot of disagreements within reform. Uh, conservative ultimately emerges from reform, to conserve, you know, um, but there was a lot of cross-pollination also, you know, as much as they would make their public proclamations, they would read each other's stuff okay. too, you okay. know, and kind of see how it was working. And because these were all like serious, serious thinkers, like, mm -hmm. and they knew that as much as like they may have denigrated the, um, the conclusions, they couldn't deny that these were smart people. You know yeah. who uh, who knew their stuff. So this um, this movement, all of these kind of movements are happening over across the pond. When does the specifically the conservative way of thinking about Judaism cross and and become a major player here in the U.S.? Okay, so um, really the uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth, uh, you have large waves of immigration, but it was also in the earlier than that. If you were a rabbi who came to America, the odds were pretty good you had kind of washed out in Europe. Hmm. Like they, the, the great European yeshivas kind of sent their B-listers. <laughs> we got the B-listers. You, you know, if you ever watch uh, like the Frisco Kid, yes, you know, Gene yes. Wilder, you know, there's some, you know, there, there's some truth to that, you know. <laughs> there, um, 
you know, because America, you know, if you think about like what it was for the Jewish community, it was, it was very small. Um, you know, it wasn't always in great places. Um, a number of the people who were Jewish who came to America were trying to get away from all that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you know um, not, not everyone, but, you know, America was a place where everyone could recreate themselves. Sure. You know, you could choose your name, your profession, like you could, you know, so very often, you know, as, as challenging as Europe was for the Jewish community of the 19th century, you know, if you were like an A-lister, so to speak, you can kind of make a, you know, make a, uh, make a go out of it. It really started there. There started to be in like the 1850s, 1860s, some very prominent Americans, very prominent rabbis who come to uh, America and, and really kind of established the reform um, movement here. I'm always a little hesitant about the word movement because it means it sounds like we know where we're going. Like these are, you know, they're, they're kind of like, these are our tendencies. Yes. And if you were to look at us, that's the label you would probably put on it, but they don't okay. divide out super neatly. Yeah. It's more like which national organization is using that name. But if you were to remove the label, you know, it would, different places are, would be uh, different. And what's nice is that you, you don't have to convert between movements. Sure. I mean, I think this part's important that people think like, wait, I thought you were formed. Why did you go to an Orthodox? Because they had, honestly, they had better food. <laughs> you know, it, it was nicer. So what you have, um, the, the, the person who really established the credibility of the, uh, the, the conservative movement in America was Solomon Schachter, mm -hmm. who was the great scholar actually of the Cairo Geniza. Yes. And uh, I got to see fragments of it at JTS. Really? I, I worked in the rare book room and you know, in America, they're all nicely laminated, but in England, you, they just hand you the fragment. Well, and that's <laughs> you know, a fascinating like, story. I, yeah. I need to do an episode on that with the the two sisters who are in the UK who oh, they, it's amazing. got yeah, a lot yeah. of those fragments. and yeah. yeah, oh, the whole story, and just the whole Dead Sea Scroll oh, story yeah. itself. Is. But uh, Solomon Schachter um, was very devoted to the idea, in Hebrew it's Klal Yisrael, and he translated as Catholic Israel, I mean, hmm. Catholic in the sense of like a universal, like a kind global. of a Judaism and global for, um, for everybody. And uh, because as a scholar, his credentials were just impeccable, that then allowed them to attract other uh, high quality scholars. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really where it started where it started, it doesn't really become a movement until a little bit later. It was really JTS as uh, an intellectual institution and to some extent a spiritual institution. And this is, this is the conflict that you always have within the conservative movement is that very academic versus very spiritual. And there are sometimes collisions, mm -hmm. you know, between the two because, you know, when you're told uh, you know a bible story as a kid and you find out well it didn't really happen exactly that way but you can still preserve the meaning of the story it still tilts people's cards sure you know, uh, a little bit and uh, jts as an institution probably lived in its head more than its heart okay like it was very academically rigorous um you know even when i was there in the 80s, uh, the Atlantic did a, a survey of the various rabbinical schools, and what they talked about, like the JTS, was very intellectually rigorous, but spiritually it had a little, uh, I would say, I don't want to use the word repressed,
depressed, but I would say um, subdued. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, um, the, the approach. And um, that, that was always the, the hardest time the movement has had. And also, you know, the, the movement requires things like the dietary laws and uh, a number of other ritual laws, which are not necessarily logical or rational, but mm-hmm. are, I think, important sociologically to the community. But then you say, oh, if I keep all these things, do I go to heaven? And they're like, well, probably, you know, I don't know, probably. <laughs> you know, you know sure. so that, that's part of the, um, you know, can you have deep spirituality and deep intellectual engagement? And, and what I mean by intellectual engagement is, you know, like Talmud study is very intellectual and it requires a lot of, you know, very deep thinking. But if you're not comparing it to other texts and other traditions that, that's what i mean about the, the the deeper intellectual approach okay yeah yeah no i i want to go a little bit i want to do a lightning round um on the views that conservative judaism might have on certain we might call doctrines um and i, I say this with some hesitancy because uh our mutual friend rabbi felipe goodman when i will ask him questions he often says depends on which rabbi you ask. There's not one. He is 100% correct. <laughs> so with, with that with that uh, asterisk there, I just want to do a lightning round of um, some different doctrines here. So first of all, um, let's talk about the Torah, the Tanakh, and the oral Torah. So those who are maybe not familiar with those, those uh, terms, the Torah would refer to the first five books of Moses, or sometimes called the Pentateuch. The Tanakh is the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, and then the oral Torah, I want you to explain a little bit of, about that. But So what are your views on those three, specifically as uh, it pertains to inspiration and, and origins of those texts? Yeah, and th- this, is, um, this is the part where it always gets complicated, because there are some people who take it, it's, like it's all human, mm-hmm. and others all divine. And we have uh, used the... I think accurate, but ultimately unhelpful phrase of divinely inspired. Mm-hmm. So what I, my metric is the stuff I agree with is divinely inspired and the <laughs> stuff I disagree with was very convenient by people. And that actually, that changes over, um, over time as well. I mean, the problem is it's all an issue of belief. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely and completely unprovable. And people say, well, there were all these witnesses to the giving of the Torah, but yeah, but the only descriptions in the Torah. So right. it, it's kind of self-referential, mm-hmm. you know, in that, um, I mean, it is the, the foundation of our people, but, um, you know, one of the things I liked about JTS when I was interviewing is they didn't make me take uh, an oath of faith that the Torah was completely from Mount Sinai word for word. Okay. Because there were institutions that did that. And I'm like, I can't, I can't promise that. And even in the, the Middle Ages, there was a scholar named Ibn Ezra who said the last several verses were written by Joshua because mm-hmm. after it says Moses died. Right. You, you know, couldn't so, have written that. So even then you have um, some conflict over it. I think you actually have more fundamentalists in the 21st century than you did in the 12th. Hmm. Hmm. You know, and uh, I think some of that is a reaction to the Renaissance, Enlightenment, Emancipation, yeah. um, things like uh, that. Um, so I would say personally, I don't know, something must have happened because yeah. it's, it's, 
just it's been around for so long we've been able to transmit it for so long but none of it's provable anyone i look at these bible codes and i just like literally any three words in hebrew if you don't have the vowels any three letters i'm sorry any three letters in hebrew if you don't have, is going to be a word right and people say well you know the torah predicts the holocaust it's like you know what would have been helpful that information before the Holocaust. Right, right. <laughs> you it's know, very subjective. Afterward, yeah, and it's just, you know, this idea of trying to prove it, it's like it, you hear God's voice when you study it, mm. and if that's what connects you, but this idea that it's provable, I think that's never been, that actually has never really been a Jewish doctrine except in certain cases mm -hmm. that you have to believe the whole thing, and that's usually times when we're really being um, really being challenged on things. Um, but the idea that the uh, entire thing is divine also takes away the possibility of partnership with humanity. And I think that the idea is, is that we're supposed to be partners with God mm -hmm. you know, in, in, um, in the world. So I would say ultimately it doesn't matter to me okay. uh, that piece of it um, because again, it's it's not provable, and and people, you know, sometimes quote scripture. Don't you see this? I'm like, you're quoting to me in English, you know, right? <laughs> like, so that's already gone through several translations, mm -hmm. and you know, so I would say ultimately that piece doesn't matter as much as that it's what formed us, and that the values are real, and I believe it does. I mean it. A lot of it is provable. I mean, there there were Hebrews in Egypt. A lot of archaeological you know, evidence. Archaeological and more and more. And um, people tried to destroy that archaeological evidence in Israel to show that we were never there. Right. But I think that that's... I'm just going to go with that's very dishonest sure. and disingenuous. Sure. To, uh, so the idea of the, um, the oral Torah is really the creation of uh, rabbinic Judaism. It, it's uh, the, the word we really use for uh, Talmud. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it was oral. There, there were a number of reasons that it was kept strictly oral in the beginning. So I would say the most philosophical is that fixed texts are like you can't mess with them. Oral texts and oral traditions you can add to, you can uh, you can grow. They develop over uh, time. Um, a uh, another reason was portability. Uh, if you have to flee. Yeah. You can take it with you. And there were a lot of people that all they did was uh, memorize. And the third, uh, to be honest, is you can't co-opt someone else's oral tradition. Mm. And in a way, the Hebrew Bible was co-opted <laughs> by other traditions and started calling it the Old Testament. Sure. Well, so it, you know, there, there's a great book by uh, John Levinson that talks about how the basically how the Hebrew scriptures and the Old Testament are two completely different books with the exact same words. Hmm. Because of the approach? Because of the approach. Yeah. And secessionism. Oh, yes. And things like that. So when the Holy Temple was destroyed and uh, animal sacrifice and other kinds of sacrifice wasn't uh, available anymore, Jews went in several different directions. Some said, okay, this is over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're going to find something else. But there are others who say, we're going to do things differently. And that's sort of, so the, the Talmud is, to a large extent, the reaction of the, the, the loss of the temple. And so just so 
listeners understand, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the what the oral Torah is or is asserted to be is that when God gave Moses the Torah, the written Torah at Sinai, he also gave him an unwritten Torah that basically says this is how to apply or inter- to interpret the written Torah. Am I right? Yeah, that, that's one of the traditions. But there was, you know, the um, when the temple was destroyed, there were a lot of competing factions. Mm-hmm. And so each one was saying, we are the authentic inheritors of the tradition. So the rabbinic tradition, of course, has this. But, you know, again, there, there's no actual textual proof in the Torah right. for it. it. It was a way of establishing credibility. Um, it was a way of establishing continuity. My guess is that almost all the rabbis of the Talmud knew that they were creating the Talmud. Mm. What they got from Moses was permission to create the Talmud. I see. You know, because it says in Deuteronomy, you know, the leaders and uh, advisors who are in your generation will make the laws Mm. too. And so I think that when you said that, that when when it says that Moses handed this Torah to, you know, to Joshua and then the elders and the members of the greatest uh, assembly. I think what he was handing down was permission and methodology of you have to decide things communally. Um, You know, one of the most powerful thing was when uh, Moses's uh, father-in-law Yitro or Jethro says, you can't do it by yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. You, you just can't do it. It's not fair to you, but it's also not fair to the people, and you're going to need people to bounce ideas off. You're going to need people to correct you. So I think when we talk about the handing down of the oral Torah, it's a system of you learn together, you make decisions together, that no one individual can override the communal Sure. You know, so I think there was a fear of kind of a cult of personality, which you see develop in Judaism from time to time anyway over the last couple thousand years. Uh, but I really think it was you can't have a community without leaders willing to engage each other and engage people and say, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was a big topic, and uh, I can't promise that they're going to get any simpler, but um, maybe very briefly talk about this idea of chosenness. Uh, the Jewish people are often referred to often by Christians as the chosen people. My experience has been that many of my Jewish friends are at best uncomfortable with that terminology. How do you understand that? Yeah, it's, I mean, first of all, the the word chosen people is really a kind of a bad translation of an idea of um, segula is that we are a cherished people, Mm. but not the only ones. And I, I really think the entire idea of creation was that all human beings were, were creating God's image. God loved everybody, but the message wasn't coming through. So the idea of the Jewish people was just to help convey the message. It's not that we got special privileges. I mean, just the Holocaust by itself should let people know <laughs> that there have been no special mm-hmm. privileges, you know, and pogroms and exiles and things like that. I, I think that, I think God tried with a, an individual and it didn't work and then a family and it didn't work and then with a people who was really composed of uh, lots of different other peoples and cultures and ethnicities and say God actually cares about everyone so the the this idea that we're chosen and therefore we're privileged and they say oh that's why you Jews are all rich mm-hmm. and that that's where it gets really um, uncomfortable first of all 
most Jews are not rich. Right, right. You know, and, um, you know, there's this sort of conflation of uh, chosenness as an excuse for anti-Semitism mm-hmm. is uh, very problematic. No Jewish person I know when we're talking to each other, except, like, kidding around, we call ourselves the chosen people. Right. You know, like, you have people, like, in Minneapolis, they call themselves the frozen chosen. <laughs> yes. You know, like, stuff that. like that, right. you know. But it's never, like, we are chosen, therefore. I mean, every religion's got some jerks, you know. Well, sure. Like, so you're always going to find a guy who's going to go on the news and he, he's going to. But I would say in my experience, and I've lived in a whole variety of communities. Like, as a kid, we went to Orthodox, Reform, Conservative. Like, I, no one I know who I think of as like a serious person and not just a knucklehead would ever use that term internally. And in my experience has been it's when it's, when it's used in terms of, of the nation, the Jewish people's uh, relationship to God, it's said with a lot of humility and an understanding of a responsibility. Exactly. Well. Yeah. It's responsibility. Not, not, uh, you're not getting something for it, but just that, to spread the idea that all people are loved by God. And that's why we don't, we don't proselytize because we believe everyone can go to heaven. Just don't be a jerk. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's no, like, you don't need to be Jewish and there's no like Jewish heaven, you know, where it's just like corned beef. (laughs) I would like to go there though. Can I ask you your, this isn't on our, on our sheet here, but uh, you kind of hit on this, the idea of heaven and hell certainly in in the in Christian theology, there's a much more vivid theology of both of those. In your view, I mean, you mentioned heaven. Do you believe that's a real place? And if if so, do you also believe in the reality of a place called hell? Um, so we don't really believe in heaven, heaven. We don't believe in hell, hell. In the way that, like, if there are words that we use mm-hmm. um, again, because there, we're we're kind of like the the prove it to us people too yes, like yes. and we don't believe anyone's ever come back and said whoa <laughs> yeah. like you really want to go there or you really don't want to mm-hmm. uh you really don't want to go there so we have this idea of like the soul continuing of being reunited some people believe in corporeal resurrection though like is it going to be my 17 year old body my 60 year old body do i get a choice yeah do I get Arnold Schwarzenegger's? Like, is there, you know, so, and uh, so I think that for, in, in general, most Jews don't think about it, just sort of the sense, like, if you're not a jerk, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's even, you know, the, the Torah doesn't really talk about the next world that much because it's coming out of Egypt, which the, it was like the Book of the Dead and the pyramids right. and a lot of focus on the next world. Um, we we definitely don't have eternal damnation. By the way, everything I say, I have no idea. It could be, like, I've told people who have asked me, I said, you might wake up in hell tomorrow. I don't want to hear it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I have no idea. But um, the the idea here is that Judaism is self-punishing and self-rewarding. Meaning, like, if you were a kind person and you did the right thing and you showed, like, a general love of humanity, even if you didn't like everyone, but, like, just, like, you, you did your best and you were kind within your capacity, then it continues and you'll be with other souls. And if you were a jerk and you hated people, you'll just be isolated. We don't have mm-hmm. the burning and any of that. We have, mm-hmm. there's this idea of kind of, like, a one-year timeout to think about it. Really? Like, you know. 
And people ask me, like, what about Hitler? It's like, that guy, he just ruined, like, you can't, most people aren't Hitlers, and I hope that his soul would just disappeared. But, I mean, it's your average schnook. You like your average, you know. Yeah. It, it um, because this idea of hell for eternity, like, even if you live to 100 and eternity, to bur- like, right. whoa. Right. <laughs> you know? And and for what you believed, I, I, so I'll share with you a story. One of the ways I wound up being a rabbi. Yeah. So if you got time you for do. okay, great. So I am um, I'm in college, and my father was a Holocaust survivor, and he had de- um, developed this um, education program about the Holocaust. And uh, I didn't really have anything else going on that summer, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll call some churches, synagogues, see if they're interested. And uh, I called a place, and I won't say where, and the pastor's long gone. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, my dad's a survivor. He's got this thing, and he said. Um, are you a Jew? And I, you know, he's like, are you a completed Jew? Yeah. 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 I think so. You know, <laughs> and my bar mitzvah, pretty, pretty complete. I don't know. So I'm going there and he is clearly not interested in the program, mm. not interested whatsoever. And then he says to me, when did you accept Jesus as your savior? I said, oh, now I'm starting to figure I'm out what you mean by a complete Jew. And then we start having this conversation about heaven and hell and how even though my grandparents were very, very devout, God-fearing people and were murdered in the Holocaust, they are currently burning in hell for all eternity. I'm like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're done here, I think. And that actually, he will never know, but that helped me decide on becoming a rabbi. Mm. <laughs> you know, because you wanted to... You know, get, I started getting more into, you know, studying about Judaism. And, I see. And to sort of like, and I got a, like, I really thought that kind of stuff ended with the Holocaust. And mm-hmm. that was like, you know, I was, what, 19, mm-hmm. maybe. And that was just like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up in uh, this area. I went to Oak Park High. You know, I went to U of M. You know, I, I was used to a very multicultural kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, this thing, this image of my grandparents burning in hell, yeah, like wow, for what they what they believed or didn't believe, mm-hmm. you know that to me. So, Judaism doesn't have any theological requirements whatsoever. And okay. if you even look at the Ten Commandments, the first one's not even a commandment; it's just a statement. I'm the Lord your God. Yeah. And what are you going to do? Um, what are you going to do about that? You know, and how are you going to react? But you know, the the word God isn't even helpful. You know. Sure. I want to I want to go into this then, um, and I want your unfiltered unfiltered view. Uh, just as a as a preface, yesterday I went to the DIA, Detroit Institute of Arts, and one of my favorite places on the beautiful planet. Beautiful yeah. man, and there are these two uh, paintings attributed to Rembrandt. One is kind of the quintessential classic Catholic depiction of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if he had blonde hair, but you know, he's looking up, he's very gaunt, very Anglo-Saxon, and completely unrelatable. Next to that painting is one, uh, it's just called Jesus, and he, uh, living in Amsterdam in the Jewish community, he actually had a, a Jewish friend pose for him right. as Jesus. And I thought, wow, that is so um, indicative of a, of a shift in Jesus' perception, or our the world's perception of Jesus, kind of this religious, um, unapproachable Jesus, and then the true Jewish Jesus. So having said that, 
where does your view, I mean, where are you in that spectrum? How do you view Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, so those are, those are kind of like two different questions. Like I guess one, they are. You know, yeah. so, um, Obviously, you don't you know, believe he's the Messiah. Who, who do well, you say he is? Yeah, I mean, he, he was a, uh, a person, a preacher. You know, he, I mean, he was, a, uh, he was a Jew. I wouldn't call him a rabbinic Jew. I think calling him a rabbi does a disservice to him and to the rabbis because, mm-hmm. he, he, you know, the, the, the rabbis at the time were kind of like a very specific group. Right. <laughs> you know, um, but he was, you know, part of a, a large, a lot of people who felt alienated by the Romans, who felt alienated from the temple. You know, I, um, I believe that he was a human who, who preached mm-hmm. and who had a, uh, who had a following and a horrible end, like many Jews, mm-hmm. uh, had a horrible end, um, thanks to the, um, thanks to the Romans. Um, what's interesting about in terms of the messianic pieces, again, we're very practical. So, Whoever is the Messiah, we're going to either say welcome or welcome back. Mm. So if it's, you know, we, t- we believe in general that the Messiah has to be alive at the time to be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have to do certain things, and whoever does those things. But if, uh, if Jesus comes back and he's the Messiah, it's going to be awkward for a minute. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like those first 10 minutes are, ooh. <laughs> yeah. um, but then it's like, okay, it's you. Okay, you know, so it's. What I think people have to understand is that we didn't reject Jesus as the Messiah. We didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus didn't yet do what we believe is necessary to fulfill it, which is like to end hate, poverty, starvation, mm-hmm. war, you know, all those sort of things. But if he comes back and does it, like he demand, you know, <laughs> right? Sure. You know, so you know, I think this idea is that it wasn't a rejection; it was not an acceptance. And I think it sounds like the same thing, but no, I think I there's there's a lot of nuance. I think the, the issue for the Jewish people is not Jesus; it's what people have done in Jesus's oh, name. Yes, yes. You, you know, that's where <laughs> that's where I think the issue is uh, the the number of people who have been murdered. And my guess is that if Jesus saw what was being done in his name, he would not approve no. of um, would not approve of that. And you know, so if you you know, for us, we we have tried over time to kind of look at Jesus as as a Jew. There was a Mark Chagall has paintings yes. and, and things like that, and Shalomayash wrote a book on the uh, the Holy Family in Yiddish, hmm. a, um, a a novel, and. Um, but it's it, it gets very touchy because the uh, this idea that we deserve what's happened to us mm-hmm. even the word holocaust is from the word for a burnt offering yeah greek yeah and this idea that somehow the deaths were atonement mm-hmm. is to me horrifying mm-hmm. you know and because of you know rejecting and so you know if we tease out the, the Jesus of the Gospels and those teachings. And I, by the way, I think it's more profound when we say that humanity <laughs> came up with these. Because to be honest, for God to do something is not impressive. Mm-hmm. Right? It's in the job description. God literally gets to do everything. So to say, oh, God is amazing and smart. Like, yeah, that's kind of like, first of all, he invented smart, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> he is the definition. He's the standard, that. you know, and he can do these things, you know, and people say, you know, God can, like, I'm not impressed when God can do stuff because that's literally the job description. Mm. Mm. You know, look up God. God gets to do everything, create everything, have the final say. But I'm moved to tears when humans find a way to bring that kind of profundity in the world. And 
you know, you need obviously checks and balances. You need to be able to say, you know, if it's all human, it turns into megalomania, right? Even in God's name, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if you we've leave, never seen that before. No. no. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I want to. I want to go to one last question sure. just for the for time here. Yeah. Um, the state of Israel, Zionism. Yeah. I'm a I'm a proud Zionist. Most of our listeners are, but uh, in the Jewish community, you have people who aren't necessarily Zionist. Um, what is, is your stance on that? Or maybe if you can even speak for most of conservative Judaism, what's the stance on Israel and Zionism? Well, you know, what's interesting is that those are actually two very different things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Israelis don't call themselves Zionists either. And I mean, Zionism is really is a 19th century term. And I'm actually, my, one of my high holiday sermons this year is about this. Zionism is essentially the belief that Jews have a place in the world for self-determination and independence. Right. And it should be in the air, in the land that is demonstrably our ancestral homeland. Right. Um, but Zion isn't a place. Like, no one's ever been to Zion. Right? It's, it's an ideal, and I think it's unfair to Israelis to say that you must live to a certain ideal when Israel now is a real place. Like I was just in Israel a few weeks ago. I wasn't in Zion. Right. I was in Israel and, and Israel is a real place. And I, I think that it's important to have idealism. You know, I still think of my, like our mission statement is still that, you know, we're committed to Zionism and the, the, the state of Israel. But I think what happens is that if you start saying something is good because Israel does it, that's yes. where it goes sideways. Yes. And this is like, even as a rabbi, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm on my day of ordination. This is uh, May of 1991. I'm like, they're going to let me out and say anything I want to say. Like, how <laughs> is this? Because what happens is you start believing that you are saying the truth and your goal is to say the truth. And then you start believing everything you say is the truth because mm-hmm. you said it. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we have to do is like Israel is a real place. It's a it's a real country. I think the world needs Israel. I would say that most conservative Jews believe that. But when you start asking people to live to a mythology, and when they say, well, every inch of biblical land, well, there are four sets of borders in the Bible. Which one? Mm-hmm. Which is the which according to the Bible is the border <laughs> of Israel? Some of it goes to Damascus. Some of it is smaller than it is. You know so. I think that the idealism prevents even Israelis from being able to create the the, the state that it needs uh, that it needs to be. So it's too much pressure. Well, it's Zionism culminates in the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, there is this uh, there was the spiritual teacher who said that you know you need the canoe to get across the river but then you don't strap it to your back I once see. you're across. I see. So Zionism yes. is the vehicle. Was the, was the vehicle. And I think there is a certain ideal to remember of we need a place in the world. We can't rely on the kindness of strangers for everything. But I think that we need to look at there's a modern state of Israel. It's got a declaration of independence. That's what it is now. These are the values it says it has. And I would think it's an act of love to hold the government accountable to its ideals, just like I would expect the government of the United States sure. to be accountable to the Declaration and all of the Constitution, not just certain amendments. Yes, yeah. But, yeah. but I would say we're pro-Israel. Yes, yeah. good. <laughs> um, 
one final question, quick one. What is a book or who is an author that has most influenced you as a, as a person? Uh, so the, it was uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm. who was, and I think you would probably find a lot of rabbis like that. And, uh, we actually had his daughter speak here uh, a, few really? years, a, year ago, a few years ago. She's a professor at Dartmouth. And it was really his writings that brought me specifically to the Jewish Theological Seminary and about the idea of being, what, what I think what connected me the most is he had this phrase, uh, I asked for wonder. You know, like, you know, he didn't ask for a great intellect or riches or this and that. What he just wanted, what uh, he, he had a phrase, radical amazement, that he said that every day is, there can be amazement, even in the, in the little things. Um, but he talked a, a lot about ethical issues. He, uh, he grew up in Poland, but he, was, uh, he went to the university in Berlin, uh, came to America. You know, he sort of bridged the Eastern and Western, and there was just... Um, level of, uh, of kindness and openness and uh, you know, he's the one who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, I was gonna say, isn't he the one who said pray with your feet? Pray with his feet, yeah absolutely but he also he was a deep scholar too like mm. people sort of miss that like he was he knew Talmud backwards and forwards so whenever he wrote or spoke he was coming out of a very deep tradition it's not just that he was an ethical person and he knew some like he he was formed uh, by that, and he wrote his PhD thesis on uh, the prophets. Mm. You know, and um, you know, so it was sort of that depth of intellect and depth of emotion, and the fact that he marched. And uh, you know, sorry, people were okay with his marching with civil rights, but when he marched against the war, that's mm. when it, it's the dividing line. Huh? Yeah, that that was kind of where. It was. But I would say Abraham Joshua Heschel, and his great-great-grandfather was one of the great Hasidic rabbis of all time in the, uh, the 19th century, uh, yeah, who he was actually named after. Well, Rabbi Aaron Bergman, I want to thank you for sitting down and talking uh, with me today and, and uh, answering my questions, and I oh, really thanks, appreciate uh, your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ty. That was great. You've been listening to Gesher, a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.